Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Holding down the fort while Chris Moore is in Chicago eating deep dish pizza, it's election shock therapy. I'm Matt Kukum, your temporary host, and joining me on this two-man podcast is Andy Bramson. Andy, uh, how are you doing? This is weird. I know, it is weird. No Chris Moore? Where's the where's the extrovert energy? <laughs> I know. I, I did my des- best to uh, to replicate Chris Moore's energy and enthusiasm, but I just, I can't. I can't do his. Um, I can't. I can't do it. I can't replace him, which is fine. Yeah. I know well, Matt and I will be walking down the hall with Chris, and you know, it's just like we're always like watching Chris get distracted by somebody who's who needs to talk to him, and of course, he wants to talk to them because he is an extrovert. And we're just like <laughs> we're, we're heading to our destination, and Chris is pausing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, lost Chris. Oh. <laughs> yes, but we. I hope he's enjoying the pizza. It's, it is good pizza. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, deep dish. Deep dish is the best. Um, Lou Malnati's is the best. I'm gonna say. I don't know, Andy, I've if you have gone a... there. Um, I've gone to Giordano's and to um, what's the other one? I can't like Gino's. Yeah, Gino's. Yeah, okay. that's good. So, but Lou Malnati's I... is the best. Okay. Um, if if Mitch was on here, he would probably disagree with me. But oh, Mitch. Uh, I'm pretty sure he would say genos okay maybe giordano's but we, we disagree on these things um, yeah. sometimes so um anyway uh we should we should actually dive into our topic um so since um mitch has taken a short break and uh chris moore is actually in uh chicago um ho- basically on a trip with uh, 16 or so um, students um, going to a Model UN conference. Um, basically, Andy and I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to discuss his sabbatical project, um, which Andy did um, back in the spring. Um, and so I'm just going to kick it to Andy here uh, very shortly. Um, basically, the project, which uh, Andy, you you gave a great library talk, I guess it was last week, um, basically presenting the project. And I know some of you, some of our listeners um, obviously weren't able to make it uh, to the presentation. I'm sure there's a Zoom recording of the presentation floating around somewhere, but not all of you might have access to it. So I thought this would be a great opportunity um, for Andy to sort of share his project with a broader audience. And the project is on um, is on political polarization in the United States and specifically um, how polarization has seeped into the church and impacted um, the church in the United States. So, Andy, could you tell us kind of a background um, on your project and then the, the method or the approach that you took? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I proposed this project back in the summer of 2019 because that's when we, we have to do it like the academic summer before the academic year. We're actually going to do it in. Um, so like, you know, almost a year and a half out. Um, and so obviously the, the issue of polarization in this country kind of goes way back. And we've talked about this a number of times on this podcast. It's something political scientists have been tracking since, you know, before you and I were political scientists, Matt, when you were you know, <laughs> high school and even elementary, right, to some extent. Um, you know, so it's, that's a longstanding issue. And what we've increasingly seen in recent years is that it, it seems to be shaping people's um, kind of primary identity. Um, in a way that you know, politics is kind of replacing, you know, other other loyalties, including um, most disturbingly, faith. Right? 
um, as kind of the primary driver of a lot of people, right? And so that was kind of like, I, I've been observing you know, studies about that, reading about that, and thinking like, what does that look like in practice? And so we have, mm -hmm. we have as I said, really good numbers on that. Um, you know, Pew Forum, for example, does a lot of good research um, that has shown this, and there's, you know, other major kind of quantitative studies um, I have neither the capacity nor the desire nor the funding, frankly, um, to do that kind of study. Um, and I don't think it needs to be replicated in the sense that, you know, there are a number of those out there. So my desire was to kind of get behind that and say, you know, what does this look like at the level of local churches, right? What does this look like to those who are leading in local churches? Um, and so I had this idea of, you know, kind of researching this by um, talking to pastors and just saying, like, mm -hmm. how are you seeing this play on the ground? Is, you know, is this thing we're seeing in the numbers, does this resonate with you? Um, do you see this in your church? And then you know, kind of what is what form does that take? And I explored this by asking about a number of specific issue questions. I asked them about kind of their, you know, what, what occupies your concerns as a pastor? And then I did, of course, ask them directly about um, the issue of, you know, polarization itself. And like, do you, do you see this in the church? Do you see it harming people spiritually? Um, how do you try to address that? So those are some of the kind of background pieces to that. And that's mm -hmm. how I structured that. Yeah. And I think these, these projects are, before we move on to the findings, these projects yeah. are important. So in, in political science, um, there's different sort of methods or approaches that we can take to exploring sort of really, really deep questions. Um, so approach that, you know, often makes the biggest headlines um, and probably receives um, more sort of time and energy within political science are these large quantitative studies, yep. um, which usually amount to these sort of very broad surveys, these large sample sizes, potentially thousands of people being interviewed um, along a number of different lines um, so that we can use statistical analysis to um, to draw connections um, between people's religious beliefs and practices, um, their their race and ethnicity, their age, uh, their religious identity, their particular policy views, um, and this work is really important. Um, and as Andy pointed out, it requires a lot of um, it requires a lot of resources. But um, but there's also um, more qualitative type methods that political scientists, social scientists, more broadly can take. Um, and sort of Andy's method, I, you know, one of the terms that's sometimes um, used for this is sort of the soaking and poking method, right? right so we're right, kind of, right. we're digging down, we're doing long form sort of more unstructured interviews. We're not so concerned with getting a large sample sample size and not a strictly scientific sample um, sample right. of a population. We're just trying to get um, sort of as broad of a set of views of, from a variety of people in a particular subset as possible and then sort of going deep um, and asking them yep. questions and seeing where things go. Um, and this allows us to basically put sort of meat, you might say, muscle on the bones, <laughs> you might say, that is provided by the quantitative research. And this is what Andy Andy is, is doing. Um, and so maybe, Andy, you can tell us just what did you learn? What are some of the key yeah. findings um, from your project this past yeah, year? Yeah, and before I do, I was just to add, like, I, mean, I think, you know, if can, I can kind of build on that political science nerdiness for a second, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting, um, you know, in the 90s, kind of again, before we were political scientists, Matt, you know, mm -hmm. this was a very big and, you know, kind of contentious debate within political science, right? Like, yeah. you know, you need qualitative, which had been more like the, the kind of traditional political science way versus quantitative, this new method, right, which lets mm -hmm. us say a lot bigger things. And, you know, and there's a lot of yelling and publishing back and forth about this, right? Yeah. And where we landed in the end is really, why do we have to choose, right? Like, why does it need to be an either or? It really does need to be a both end. I mean, I think quantitative is tremendously important. I don't have, you know, quite the skill set to do that well. I don't have the money, um, but I'm very grateful for that. And I really see my research as kind of piggybacking on that and saying, like, yep, we've shown this. We see this in the numbers. Now, what does it what does it look like 
um, in practice, right? And I think that is, you know, mm -hmm. it, it helps us, as you put it, to kind of put the meat on the bones and say, okay, we, we have these broad patterns, but what does it look like when we, when we zero down into not just a broad pattern, but like, what does it look like at the level of individual churches? And that's what I wanted to explore. So what I found, I mean, in general is, um, yeah, I mean, you know, political divisions are, it seems really having an adverse effect, adverse effect on um, congregations. And, you know, pastors were really concerned about this. Um, and especially, um, you know, especially among um, white congregations, you got this. It was interesting, like the minority pastors I interviewed were, um, you know, less concerned about the impact of polarization. And I, I'm not exactly sure why that was. And I had a relatively small group of minority pastors that I interviewed. I, I have three ideas why maybe minority pastors didn't see this as being quite as big an issue. I mean, one, I think, is um, they just have other issues that are more central and that, you know, the racial tensions arising from, say, the George Floyd um, mm -hmm. killing uh, and, you know, incidents like that, you know, Dante Wright shooting and so forth um, have just, you know, kind of been more occupying of their kind of energy and their concern. Um, and so they see polarization as being a little more secondary. That's one possibility. Um, another is, frankly, you know, the pastors I interviewed who were, uh, minorities were mostly bivocational, um, which means they have less time to to devote to this. And so I think, you know, when I talked to them, I heard more about, you know, trying to manage the basic organizational things of the church, right? I need to prep messages. I need to make sure we have people lined up to do things on Sunday. I need to make sure the building's fine. Um, and there wasn't necessarily quite as much time to to explore those ideas with, with congregants. And so that might be it. Uh, and the other thing I think, and this is probably the most likely, is, um, you know, just that, you know, they're more used to the fact that there is a divide between um, kind of where they are in, you know, where they are as a church and where the society is, right? So um, mm -hmm. it just didn't seem, it didn't seem like a new problem to them. And so maybe it doesn't then, you know, just sort of becomes part of the, the woodwork, so to speak, right? Um, but among most of the congregations I talked to, the, or the pastors I talked to, their congregations, they said, yeah, we do struggle with this, right? And we really do see um, this kind of polarization impacting um, the congregation. And they, they would talk about things like, you know, it's where is people's primary allegiance, right? Um, you know, is it to Jesus, right? Which is, of course, who it should be to for us as Christians, right? Or mm -hmm. is it to Christian nationalism, right? Is it to their political party, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what is, you know, where, where kind of is their heart? their heart lie right so that was mm -hmm. um that was one of the big themes we saw and I, I and i also saw just like you know the pastors were concerned like you know we don't we don't have kind of the focus of people right so i heard things like you know people can do a couple of major things in life right that they can really focus their energy on and we often end up being like the third right so the mm -hmm. church is not a priority right um and so you hear you hear that kind of language right or they'd say you know look um you know my my congregants are listening to these these news outlets be they on the right or left um, or they're list, they're reading these blogs, right? And they do this for many hours a week, and they engage in that way, and they go on social media, and they, you know, have these arguments, and then they come to church for an hour, right? I mean, like, how much influence do I have in an hour, right? How much do I get in a half an hour sermon, right? So it's um, or those kinds of concerns, like, yeah, this really is this really is impacting. Um, yeah, I can I can talk about specific issues I talked about too, but maybe I don't know if you want to jump in. On yeah, that. no, th this is this is I, I like how we're sort of starting top level and sort of going down. Um, one of the things that I found interesting about your project is, um, so you you interviewed um, you interviewed from across a variety of di different denominations, right. um, and a, sort of a commonality across all the all the the pastors that you you know. Right. that you interviewed um, was they are sort of morally and theologically conservative, small right. o orthodox, yeah. right? right. Um, but they're but they're sort of across the spectrum: Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, um, Catholic, right, um, and and so on. 
Um, and so could you so sort of tell us a little bit about what you found with regards to um, did did were there differences across the denominations and yeah. the sorts of things that pastors these pastors were saying and the sorts of concerns they had for their congregations or is there some other variable that can explain some of these differences yep yep and so as you we said earlier I mean I wasn't trying to get a scientific sample obviously and so I, you mm -hmm. know, I have a broad range of denominations so that meant in some cases I was only interviewing one or two people from a denomination but mm -hmm. I did also try to get a couple of um, kind of concentrated denominational grouping. So I interviewed a number of Anglican pastors, which is my own tradition, and then a number of Converge pastors. That was actually my largest group with the Converge, um, which is a Baptist tradition and the Baptist tradition that actually founded Bethel. Um, so, you know, I had some good connections there, which worked out great. Sure. Um, and what was interesting, right, is that, you know, I found that the differences were not like, you know, sort of what's the difference between, say, a, a Converge Baptist versus a, a Presbyterian or a Catholic, right? Um, it had much more to do with where the church was located geographically. Um, mm -hmm. And so what I found was that urban churches, um, you know, churches in the cities expressed similar kinds of concerns. Um, suburban churches expressed similar concerns and rural churches expressed similar concerns. Right. And so what, what was what were more similar was like one rural church to another, as opposed to, say, one Baptist church to another. Um, and again, with Converge, I mean, I had, you know, I had converged churches that were in urban areas. I had converged churches that were suburban as well as converged churches that were rural. Um, and and they felt not so much similar to each other as converged churches, um, but similar to their kind of geographic counterparts, right? So they would be, you know, a rural, um, you know, converged church would be more like a rural, you know, Methodist church, right? Um, mm. Instead of being more like an urban um, converged church, which was interesting, right? Because you think like, well, if it's about belief driving this, right? If it's about the kind of doctrinal statements and the practices we have, um, in other words, if it's really about the church that's primarily shaping people, right, we would expect then that church tradition to be really, really significant. But what it seemed like was that it was more the social setting that was really significant. And that was almost more the primary shaper then of how, how things played out in the church um, is kind of what, what geographic um, and social setting they were in. Interesting. So... So do you have maybe a theory for why the these patterns tend to have a primarily geographical dimension to them? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing, you know, this, and this gets back to other stuff we've, you know, seen in the political science literature. Um, people are sorting themselves, right? And mm -hmm. they sort themselves into more and more, um, you know, ideologically, socially coherent kind of groupings, right? Um, and so you have this, you know, this idea of the big sort that's been floating around now probably for about a decade, I guess. Um, and, you know, and we've talked about, you know, I've talked about Mason's Uncivil Agreement book on this podcast a number of times, right? But just this idea that people get into their tribes and they identify with those tribes. And so increasingly, you know, like, you know, areas of, you know, geographic areas are, you know, are oriented around a particular party and particular ideological leaning, right? So, you know, if you follow national politics at all, you'll see like, oh, yeah, there's the, you know, the urban areas are going to be pretty blue, pretty democratic, right? Um, rural areas increasingly are very, very Republican, very red. Um, suburban is a mix, um, tends to lean more to the conservative side, but a little bit more, a little more swingy um, mm -hmm. on, the, on the suburb, right? Um, and so, you know, we, we see that, that kind of organization. So you're surrounded by these people in society, um, in your community, who are kind of ideologically similar to you. Um, and often you've deliberately chosen that area. You want to be in that area because the people are, you know, they're the good people, right? They're people like me. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you, you have that, that shaping factor. 
Um, and that then comes into the church. I mean, often that means churches themselves end up being pretty ideologically um, coherent, right? But w- the question is like, what's driving that? Is it is it their their faith, right? Um, or is it their their social setting? And so, I mean, one one example, right, from one of the pastors I talked to. This was a rural um, Lutheran church, right? But the the pastor said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, when I preach on things like poverty, I'll get pushback, right? Because like that's a democratic issue, right? And that's a, a really interesting comment when you think about it, because you, if you read scripture, right, if you take scripture seriously, and, we as, and most of the people I interview were Protestants, and so we're, you know, we're in that Luther, Sola Scriptura line, right, um, where we, we take that really seriously. Um, if you read scripture, there is a ton about poverty and about caring for the poor and about caring for the people in need. And, you know, you think about Matthew 25, the end of Jesus' last discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, um, where he talks about, you know, when you come before me, Right. And I'm deciding, like, you know, essentially like, who's going to heaven and who's not. Right. Who's coming into my presence? Who's not. Um, what's the, the thing that's going to be brought up? Did you care for the poor? Did you care for the poor? Did you care for the hungry? Did you care for the needy? Right. Um, because if you did that, you cared for me. Right. And if you didn't do that, you didn't care for me. Right. So that's really, really important. I mean, it's, it's a scriptural theme throughout scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. It's there. Right. Pastors should preach on it. Pastors do preach on it. And it's interesting that when, you know, this, this pastor was preaching on it, the pushback the pastor got was, you know, that's an issue that's on the other side, right? Um, Democrats talk about the poor, the poor and the marginal. No, 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 no. Before there were these things called Democrats, right? There was this thing called Christian, right? And we stood there. And we can give examples from the other side. I mean, I tended to get more of those because, again, as you pointed out, I was um, focusing on theologically conservative churches. So that was mm-hmm. more of that pushback on issues that seemed to, you know, to the congregants too far to the left. But to me, that suggests, like, what are we being shaped by primarily? Is it our faith and our, you know, and I'm taking scripture seriously, or is it the social setting where we say, but I'm conservative Republican. And therefore these are the issues, you know, I want to talk about being pro-life. I want to talk about being pro-traditional marriage. Right. And, and I'm, I agree. Those are important too. Right. But I think of what Christ said a little bit earlier in the gospel of Matthew, right. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And it does feel like sometimes the social setting is causing us to leave the others. undone. Yeah. And no, I think that's right. And I think your study, uh, confirms a lot of of lot of what we know and and fills it out right it, it turns yeah. out that that you know our sort of where we live right sort of our geographical lo- location um, our ideology and our partisanship have much more explanatory power right yeah. than particular religious doctrines right yeah. you can find common religious doctrines you know across um you know across certain ideologies or parties or, you know, locations, right? Um, But which suggests that there's something else going on, right? That it's your geography, it's your political values, it's your partisanship, um, which are sort of driving um, the views that you have on certain social political issues, um, certain policy preferences, and the salience, right? The, The importance of these issues, right, are not primarily being driven by religious doctrines, but by something else. Right. Um, And I think it's interesting that your, that your, (laughs) that your own survey here in, in Minnesota basically captured that. And so one of, one of the questions that I I have just sort of thinking about the method, right. Is in some ways, what we have in your, in your study are sort of two different sets of subjects, right? Um, and I don't mean subjects to be a, a derogatory term. That's just a term we use in, in social science, right? So, so we have um, the pastors who you're interviewing, um, but then we also have their congregants. And you are not directly studying the congregants. 
you're studying the pastors and whatever you learn about the congregants is sort of mediated through what you learn about the pastors. And so I was wondering if you could comment on whether or not you got a sense in which there was any sort of divergence um, between the pastors um, and their congregants and to what extent it seemed like the pastors um, shared the views of their congregants and and values and priorities. Yep. No, that's a good question. And I think this is one of the the tricky things methodologically with this study. And it is, because you're right. I mean, I'm getting the, the congregants views in, insofar as I am getting them um, kind of mediated by the pastor and by the pastor's perceptions. And I think, you know, the pastor's ability to do that well varied, right? I mean, it, so, um, for example, some pastors, you know, as I said, were bivocational. I don't know if they are able to engage as deeply. I think uh, with, with some of their, their congregants, I think um, just, I mean, and that's not, you know, attacking them anyway. It's just a time issue, right? I mean, like, you know, if you don't have time to talk to people, um, as much, right? It, it does limit your ability to know them deeply. If you're pastor of a large church, right? Um, and I interviewed some of those, right? Like your ability to really engage is also limited, right? I mean, like in some cases, what you're really doing is you're being, you know, you're giving me the view of your congregants that's probably mediated by associate pastors who are really dealing with them directly, right? Um, whereas if you're in, you know, pastor of a smaller church and you're full time, right? You probably have a deeper, deeper sense. So I think um, that is a real, a real issue, right? Um, in terms of what I got from them, um, I definitely got pastors telling me, like, here's where I land, here's where my congregation lands on average, right? And here are some tensions, right? And some of the places you would get tensions emerging would be on things like, you know, preaching on poverty, as I already mentioned, right? Or, you know, um, position on January 6th riots, right? I had a pastor of an, um, a rural church talk to me about, you know, I felt like I really had to say something about what happened on January 6th, right? With the storming of the Capitol. I had people who were upset with me because my congregation is very conservative and this pastor was conservative. I mean, this pastor, I don't know, you know, whether this pastor voted for Trump or not, but, but certainly was a politically conservative and made that pretty clear in the, in the interview, but still said like, but there was something wrong about what happened here. Right. Um, And so there was a divergence between kind of where the pastor landed on this issue versus where, um, you know, the congregation, the congregation. Mm-hmm. I had another pastor say something similar. I, I, I came down on the January 6th thing. Um, and again, you know, politically conservative pastor, mm-hmm. um, pretty politically conservative congregation, got a lot of pushback, right? And this was a suburban mm-hmm. church. But, you know, it was, there was that kind of, um, you know, my congregation's happy to have me talk about being pro-life, which he did does a lot, right? But, but you know, not so happy to have me push against, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of the ruling party. So there was definitely the divergence. There were pastors I talked to where it was hard to really get a sense of the congregation very well. I mean, I had one pastor, I remember a suburban church where, you know, it just felt like I, I was asking about like, how is your congregation thinking about this? And then it was always about, how do I think about this? Right. So it was really, you know, there were all those, most of them I felt like they did a pretty good job of saying, well, here's how I think the congregation would think. Here's how I would anticipate a rough breakdown. I don't have you know, numbers, but, but, you know, here's, here's my sense of it. Um, and, you know, again, I think they're, if they're good pastors, and I assume they were, right, they seem to be, um, you know, then I would assume they would have a decent view of their congregation. But I did have, a, you know, a couple of those where I did feel like all I really got was interesting. the pastor telling me, you know, um, this is where I'm at. And then it was sort of like the pastor would, like, then read it onto the congregation, like, right. my congregation, they should line up here. And maybe they do. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, it didn't feel like the pastor was super reflective. But that was... I can really just think of that one primarily. Um, there might have been one other one, but um, you know that, that was where that was a real issue. Most of them seem to do a pretty good job of trying to say, "Here's what I think is going on." 
Yeah. And this is where if Andy had another semester sabbatical, he could go do interviews with congregants from these congregations to to sort of tease out the relationship between the two. Um, Or you may not want to do that. Um, But no, I I think that's interesting. I think that's it's maybe a helpful counterpoint to some of the stuff that we read in the news um, about pastors of more sort of conservative and theologically and morally and politically conservative churches um, who sort of make the news for their very sort of uh, vociferous support for uh, for Trump or for Trumpism um, or for the most extreme forms of American nationalism, right? Um, we get, I mean, there was an example of a mega church in San Antonio just made the news a few weeks ago on this. Um, so I suppose it is encouraging to hear that there are pastors who are trying to lead their congregants in thinking about um, thinking carefully in a more nuanced way about who they are as Christians, right? And and I guess my question to you, Andy, is maybe what what's the theory behind why why pastors seem to be diverging from their some pastors seem to be diverging from their churches on some of these issues? Is it perhaps that pastors, because this pastoring and thinking about Christianity and living it out is just much more part of their identity than the average congregant? Do you think that might be sort of a reason why you see some of this divergence? Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess I would think about this maybe in a couple of ways. I mean, one is obviously, you know, most of these pastors have, um, they've gone to seminary. They've spent a lot of time doing study of scripture, study of the Christian tradition, right? Um, Study of theology, right? Mm -hmm. And realized that, you know, there are a number of theological issues that matter, right? And so I think it's a little harder for them just to sort of say, well, let me choose the couple hot button issues on Mm -hmm. my side of the political aisle that I prefer and just, you know, sort of let that be what matters, right? Um, And so, you know, again, not, you know, they were, they were pretty much almost all, if not all, um, you know, pro-life, you know, almost all, you know, strongly supportive of, you know, kind of biblical marriage, right? Between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also say, you know, that, that, Yes, of course, we have we have an obligation to care for the poor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and most of them would acknowledge, you know, with varying degrees of passion, right? We have a, a sort of biblical stewardship of, you know, the, the, a stewardship that we're given as humans over creation, right? I mean, the degree to which that was an active part was maybe varied, but they would acknowledge that. And so you you see those truths, right? And I think as a leader, you have to you realize, I mean, maybe you're prioritizing some over the others. Maybe you think others, some are more central than others, but. But you also know, like, but this is still important, right? It's still there, and we have to teach that. Um, mm-hmm. so, and as you think about, like, how do you how do you teach the congregation? How do you lead the congregation? Um, mm-hmm. Want to lead them wholly, right? Not just like partially, right? So not just like mm-hmm. or partial. Like these are th- these things are important, but but say no. Here's the range of things that really are part of the faithful life in Jesus Christ. So I think it's harder. Um, I think it's harder for them to avoid that. I think, um, you know, there's also the sense, you know, pastors do have these connections amongst churches. And again, you know, if you're, you know, a pastor of a, say, a rural converged church, right, mm-hmm. um, you are going to events where you're interacting with pastors of urban converged churches. And you are hearing, like, well, what's it like to pastor in the inner city, right? What is it like to, um, what is it like mm-hmm. to, you know, to work with people in that setting, right? And you realize there's a different set of issues. There's a different set of um, things that congregate congregants are you know, concerned about. Um, and that reminds you again of that need for the whole teaching, right? That you can't just like sort of focus on, on the things your, your congregants want to hear. So I think, um, you know, I think there, there is that, that maybe bigger, the sense of the bigger yeah. kind of context as opposed to just being bound by your, your, 
geographic place, and then the voices that you hear most immediately, often which are, again, voices you've sought out because these are the sympathetic voices. These are the ones that yeah. sound like kind of what you want to hear. Um, and I think I, I would just add to this, like, I, I sympathize with pastors because I think there's this very real sense in which you, know, you want to push the congregation to think about this well, um, but you're limited how much you can do that, right? You're limited by that time that I mentioned earlier, right? You don't, you have so you know, limited amount of time with them um, to really do this. And so how far, how far can you push them, right? I think it's easy to be critical of pastors and saying like, oh, you know, you, you know, your congregation is taking this unbiblical view, whether it's on poverty or on, you know, abortion or whatever else, right? But, you know, they're they're trying to kind of mm -hmm. incrementally nudge them in the right direction, right? And right. They, because if you if you just you know you push too hard, I mean, what do they do? They walk, right? This is the grand tradition of American kind of free market church hunting, right? I mean, like, right. You just go find another church where the pastor says things that you 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 like more, right? So so they're trying to they're trying to pastor, they're trying to shepherd, right? Mm -hmm. Shepherding means gently leading the flock, um, not not trying to drive them and not trying to tick them off, right? And and it's a delicate balance because you want to lead them into truth but you do want to keep leading them. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think those are compelling explanations. And I wonder if we were to add, you know, a few more hypotheses, which I suppose we're not gonna be able to test. Um, you know, pastors um, oftentimes have considerable amounts of education, right? Most of them at least have an MDiv or an equivalent, if not more, right? So they have considerable amount of education. Um, and we know that education actually is an interesting explanatory variable um in sort of looking at the views that you know not just religious people have but people in general have um about about politics about society so so there's the fact that they're educated um and there's also the fact that if you're a pastor i wonder if you know at least in most in most settings i guess you could get some congregationalist sort of churches and pastors who don't have formal training that wouldn't fit in this Right. this model, but you have most pastors, you know, they receive training in seminaries, which are institutions. Yeah, sure. They are part of denominations, which have institutional structures. Um, they are, you know, they are trying to lead churches, which are institutions. Um, and that is going to gear them towards thinking about the importance of institutions, the importance of keeping them healthy and maintaining them, right? Um, and, and the sort of culture that is necessary to do so, right? And a lot of what we're seeing um, on the right these days is a kind of anti-institutionalism, um, which is born out of a distrust for institutions, which there is a lot of good reasons to distrust, but also just sort of a lack of awareness and understanding of the, the importance of institutions. Um, and that sort of lack of awareness um, of the importance of institutions has been a feature of um, sort of a American religious conservatism for decades, if not well over a century, depending on how you look at it. And so I wonder if I wonder if this is part of part of an explanation of why we see um, pastors in, in some ways diverging with their congregants. I don't know if you had thoughts on that hypothesis. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, I was trying to kind of partly get that with the just I mean, think about that broader context. And I think the way you frame it with institutions is really useful. I mean, pastors are fundamentally leading an institution, right? So they are you know, at that level, they are necessarily institutionalized. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and the church is, you know, this, 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 you know, the, as we describe it in, in the, within the church, the body of Christ, but it's an institution, right. Um, that binds people together across these lines. It's bigger and it's bigger than any individual congregation. And it's mm -hmm. necessarily bigger than any, you know, like particular ideological grouping that you find, whether in, again, an urban context or a rural context, right. Um, or anywhere else. Right. So, 
so it, it it necessarily does have that that bigger perspective, and they're aware of that. I mean, if you again, if you if you've gone to seminary, if you studied church history, and you mm-hmm. studied theology, right? You realize like, oh, there's a bigger you know, there's a bigger context there. There's there are competing explanations, and even if I think like here's the best one, um, you know, you, you know, even when you hold it like a core truth, right, mm-hmm. of how of, of something we believe, right, as Christians. You can still say like there are different ways Christians explain this, and there's different ways we get there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and pastors usually do have a sense of that. Um, I think often the congregants don't as much; they don't spend necessarily as much time thinking about it. Sometimes it's because they don't have that education, but sometimes it's just like even the focus of their education, right, isn't on on that thing, right? And so I think um, these are, yeah, those are some of the reasons why why pastors are mm-hmm. are maybe more aware of that. Good. Thinking, and I know we have to wrap pretty soon here, thinking sort of um, just about sort of this segment of the American church that you sort of peered into. Um, One of the things that you said um, back during your library talk that stuck with me was that, and just made sense, is that um, churches, you know, denominations, right, groups of, you know, Christians, who tend to be more sort of small o orthodox, theologically conservative, morally conservative, holding to the views that um, the church has historically taken, really, um, since since the beginning, 2,000 years ago. Um, These sorts of churches are used to um, trying to sort of hold fast in the midst of changing changing cultural trends um, and cultural pressures, right? And so that's something that um, these churches have have tried to do. And and I was sort of been thinking about this since your library talk, and well, really longer than that, but but certainly since your library talk. And I wonder, you know, and I wonder if you could comment on this. You know, it seems that the theologically conservative churches, which have this sort of tendency to to try to reject the bad parts of culture, right? Um, they are susceptible to their own sort of cultural captivity, right? So, yeah. so let's you could think of it this way. So, there's the mainstream sort of secular and increasingly liberal and progressive t- culture, which is oftentimes um, oftentimes hostile um, towards towards religion. Right. And so then there's um, in response to this, there's a growing counterculture. Now, this counterculture um, has a lot of different dimensions. Right. And it's got different corners and pockets. There's different flavors of this counterculture. But this counterculture, broadly speaking, over the past couple decades has become more populist, Uh more nationalist, um, more um, anti-institution. Um, but it still maintained this sort of fundamentally sort of religious sort of nature to it. Yeah. And it turns out that this counterculture is actually a culture, right? right? It's not like there's the culture and then there's just a reaction to it. It's like there's a co- the counterculture is culture, right? Yeah. And this yeah. counterculture is not purely Christian, right? It's got right. all of these other um, sources and influences, some of which are in deep tension right. with Christianity. Right. Right. And so these more theologically and morally conservative churches are in danger of being captured by the culture of the counterculture, while we might say that the more progressive churches might be in danger of just being captured by the mainstream culture. But but fundamentally, um, right. there's 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 a similar danger here. And I think that's something that, that we have to maybe um, start to wrap our heads around more. Yes. I was wondering if you could just sort of tell me if I'm sort of off base or if that kind of fits with what you've been learning um, over the past year. Yeah, no, I think that's very well put that. And I, I agree, that's right. What I would say about that is a couple things, I guess. I mean, one, um, and I'm back, in some back 
be here, so I hope you're okay. But um, one one thing I would say is the rest of the church there has been a tendency to just sort of accept that, right? To sort of say, yeah, the culture has these values. We prioritize certain, um, you know, kind of basic Christian ideas, like we love people, right? We love Jesus. We follow in that love, um, and um, you know, so we do that and then kind of we adapt to the culture, right? Mm-hmm. This is why one of the reasons I thought like looking at the kind of small Orthodox Christianity, um, the more conservative theologically, you know, would be more interesting, right? Because hmm. the rest of the church is saying like, we're going to do that anyway. Okay. So they, then they do that, right? I mean, like they just adapt to the culture, um, which you call the mainstream culture and, and that happens. Right. But, but in the, conservative churches, we said, no, we don't do that, right? We, we, we hold to scripture, right? We hold to, you know, these are the teachings of the church and we cannot compromise them. And what you're suggesting, and I think quite rightly, is that in fact, there has been a slippage from that, right? That this is no longer really the standard, right? That what we're really doing is we're taking that, that countercultural standard, if you can call it that, right? And I agree with you, it's not really just a counterculture, it's a culture itself, right? It's just an alternative culture. I don't know what we want to call it, but <laughs> And, and they're really making that the standard. So in that sense, you know, there's increasing tendency among, you know, the kind of theologically conservative, small Orthodox churches to do what the progressive church is doing just in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to also take on these kind of cultural standards. And, you know, I come back to the example I gave earlier. I mean, I think with the, um, you know, the rural pastor, right, who was saying, like, when I preach on poverty, here's the reaction I get, right? And and to me, it's like that that says something, right? That says like, well, there's a standard they're holding this to, and it's not scripture because the pastor was right. I mean, you know, a message on poverty and on the Christian obligation to care for the poor and the marginalized is a really well-grounded theme in scripture, right? You can look at lots of texts, right? This is not just like one statement somewhere that's ambiguous, right? It's a it's a recurring drumbeat, right, in scripture. Uh, this really matters. And the, and the congregants are pushing back on that. Why are they pushing back on that, right? Because they have this other cultural standard. They're saying, I think these things are important. And and that cultural standard is saying, you know, this is related to your faith, right? So as a Christian, here's the things you should care about. But ironically, like some of the things it's telling them to care about, right, are actually, you know, they're, they're consistent with that culture, that counterculture, but they're they are against scripture, right? So we're going to talk about immigrants in certain ways. And look, I mean, I'm not arguing against law and order, right? The importance mm-hmm. of law and order, that is important. And that too, you can make a very strong case for from scripture. But you also need to say, but within that, we always treat people as humans, right? We also we always see them as people created in God's image. We always see the needy as people that we have an opportunity to minister God's love to, right? And if we lose sight of that, and we start saying, well, we just, we're hardline, it's all about law and order, and we don't worry about, kind of the caring for the people, um, we have to ask ourselves, like, what is our standard here? Is that really coming from scripture or is it coming from that alternative culture? And again, I just, us as, as theological conservatives, like that is a really big problem because unlike our, you know, our friends in the progressive church, right, who are saying like, oh, here's how we think about it. We go with the culture. We just want to love people, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I disagree with that approach. I disagree with it strongly, right? But, but you know, at least they're being consistent, right? When we go down this path, we are, you know, we're saying one thing, scripture may, and maybe tradition is, our, you know, these are standards mm-hmm. for us, but now they're really not, right? Now right. we're saying actually what we're doing is is shaped by the culture. And I think, you know, I was just bringing one other thing here, which is, you know, I've, 
I've been impressed by the work of James K. Smith, who teaches philosophy at mm-hmm. um, University. And Smith talked a lot about the kind of power of formational practices, right? Like the way you are formed shapes who you are. And so, you know, Smith has this line, right? We're not brains on a stick, right? We're, we're people are shaped by our loves, right? Um, and so he talks about the need, you know, to form our loves so that we will faithfully follow. And I think that's maybe some of the problem we have in kind of some of our theologically conservative churches is we've we focus on like we need to have right thoughts, right? But we're not we haven't thought as much about how are we being formed, how are our loves mm-hmm. being formed. We're letting our loves be formed by the society around us, and that in turn ultimately then shapes what we actually mm-hmm. do. Yeah, ah, so so many things there. I mean, to to the one point you made, um, I mean, I think some of the some of the problem is. You know, as a if you tend to be more politically conservative, you could say like, well, I I disagree with some of the more extreme progressive policies on open borders or on the expansion of the welfare state. And there's good principled reasons to to disagree with those and critique those, right? But I think you know a lot of times there's sort of an overreaction, right? And and sort of a, a lack of sort of any sort of nuanced thinking that means that sort of disagreement with these more extreme policy prescriptions, right. Um, lead to sort of the corruption of one's own principles. Right. Um, and thus, you know, the rejection of, you know, caring for the poor, caring for, for the sojourner within the gate. Right. Um, so I think, you know, that, that is a key part of the story. Um, and I just want to sort of agree with you about the importance of habituation. Right. Um, one of the things that also stuck with me from your library talk was, um, how, um, sort of politics has become a part of our identity, but it's also become, it's not just that politics is replacing our religion, our religious identity. Politics is the new religion, right? We have certain rituals that we participate in, certain habits, um, certain liturgies, in a sense. Um, we have certain priests or pastors, right, that we're tuning in to listen to, to get guidance and direction, right? There's certain texts um, that we pay attention to and that we read. Right. Um, and, and these things are the things that are forming us, um, and shaping the values that we have, um, shaping how we go about thinking about these matters. Um, and the more we imbibe these things, the more we participate in these things, the more that they're going to form us. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Yeah, I think that, you know, that just one of the examples that I talked about in the talk too, maybe worth mentioning here is, just that idea of like, what are your devotional practices, right? I mean, you know, you could sit and read scripture, you could sit and pray in the morning, or you could sit and read blogs, right? Like about like sort of the latest hot button issues and the latest things we're upset about. And and I had a pastor explicitly say, like, I think what my congregation does is they they read those blogs and they almost seem, seem like, like now I'm morally charged up. Now I'm ready to fight the good fight. And it's mm-hmm. like, is that really the good fight, right? Like, um, and is that really spiritually forming you in a good way? And I think mm-hmm. the yeah. Um, but I also think that the pastor is probably on to something that's increasingly common. Yeah. So maybe we can wrap with this. What are some things that um, that Christians can do practically to um, to not be captivated by either the culture or the counterculture and to not let um, our our um, our politics become our religion in a sense? And maybe we could sort of reflect on that for a couple of minutes briefly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to reflect on. I mean, I'll start, I guess, with this, saying just like be be thinking at some level about you know, what really is shaping your views, right? Um, and what's shaping your actions. Um, and then thinking about, in particular, the question, I mean, like, you know, are there things in, in Scripture 
um, in the teaching of scripture, in the tradition of the church, right, that you are shying away from because of your social environment or your party identity or your ideological identity, right? I mean, um, are there are there those teachings that you are saying, well, I don't want to keep, make that important because that aligns with people that I disagree with, you know, that I don't feel a kind of affinity with, right? Um, are, are there things you're shying away from, right? And I think we need to be be kind of purified by the truth of scripture, by the teaching of the church, right? And um, so we need to ask ourselves that hard question. I mean, and I think I think we all face that. I think we're all tempted to that. I mean, like I, I just find it myself, right? To kind of get personal here for a second, I tend to um, I tend to assess kind of spiritual well being by my own strengths, right? So I think about what are the things I do well. Right. And then I want those things to be really important. Right. Because, of course, then I'm doing well. Right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, so we assess it that way. And then the things that are I, I maybe I'm not as strong at. Right. And there are a number of those. Right. Um, I want those to be less significant. Right. Um, and that's a that's an understandable human tendency. Right. And I'm sure our colleagues in psychology could give them a very nice explanation for why we do this. Right. Um, but, you know, that's the problem. Right, because objectively, that's you know that's not actually a good way to think about sort of faith formation. Right, that we need to be challenged by those things precisely where we are weaker. Right, hmm. uh, and we think about what Paul says in First Corinthians twelve about the body of Christ. Right, we need the whole body of Christ. We need the body of Christ to provide exactly what we're lacking. Right, we need, hmm. you know, if, if we're the hand, right, we need the foot. We, we need the mind. We we need the eye, and so forth. Right, um, and so we need we need those other parts to challenge us where we're weak. Um, so are we letting ourselves be challenged? Are we letting ourselves be challenged by scripture, by the church, right? To say, you know, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, you know, okay, it's great that you're really strong on, you know, being pro-life, right? And that you take se- that seriously and you talk about that life seriously. But do you also talk about um, immigrants, ser- you know, in a way that is honoring to the fact that they too are people for whom Jesus Christ died, right? Um, they too are people who are created in God's image. Um, and so do we, do we think about that? And then I would just say like, how are we, how are we spending our time? Right. I mean, and I think for me, this is a struggle too. Like it's easy to spend a lot of time reading news and, and reading opinion stuff. Right. And to some extent you and I have to do that, Matt. I mean, we're in, a, you know, we're in a profession where we do have to talk yeah. about, it. we do have to be aware of what's going on, um, because it will come up and people, you know, students need to know this and we need to be able to talk about it intelligently, but, but what captured, what captures our hearts, right? What is the, what is you know, what is it that we dwell on that we meditate on? Um, and when it's, when it's those things and not the things, uh, you know, the, the, of scripture of what we're, we're reflecting on together as a Christian community, as, as the church, right. When it's, when, the, when those kind of things of the, the kind of passions of the world are what's dominating us. Um, what kind of outcomes do we expect to get? Right. I think mm-hmm. what we're going to get is we're going to be like the world. Right. And so, um, so how do we, how do we find a way to kind of reshape what's, what's shaping us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. Right? I mean, I think you know uh, what what would American Christianity look like if every Christian listened to as many sermons as they did yeah. news shows, yeah, or talk radio? What would American Christianity look like if we spent as much time devoted to scripture and prayer, scripture yeah. as we did reading the news, or prayer to God as we did posting on social media, right? I imagine things would look different, look different yeah. for me, look different for a lot of us, right? I, I think we should engage in a sort of healthy sort of um, introspection um, and sort of uh, gut checks, self checks, yeah. right? Um, you know, if if America was destroyed today, just just wiped away, 
would your view, would my view of God and the church remain unchanged? Right. If it would be changed, then there's probably something wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, if all of a sudden, you know, you began to be persecuted, right, would your view of, of God change right. or not? Right. right. Um, you know, what, what is the priority that the body of Christ, you know, that the church, the local church has for you, right? How much yep. time do you, do you spend serving your, your political appetites, your political, um, your political party or tribe? And how much time do you spend sort of serving the church and its needs um, and its ministries, right? right. Um, and I think we can use these things to sort of, and I can use these things to sort of reflect upon, you know, how much of a priority, um, where, where my identity is, where my treasure really is. Right. Yeah. Um, because you know, where our treasure is, that's where our, where our hearts are. Um, what the things that we desire, the things that we worship. Um, and it turns out that, um, the things that we, that we spend the most time with, we become like those things and we ultimately become like the things that we worship. Right. So, so the more that we spend time in the body of Christ, um, and spend time with God, right. And in service to him, the more we will become like him, right. right. The more time that we spend, um, the more time that we spend um, sort of with our culture or our counterculture, right, um, in service to their those respective tribes, the more we will become like them ourselves, right? Yeah. Um, and we're not supposed to be conformed to these things. We're supposed to be conformed to to Christ and his character. Um, and Christ had, um, had absolutely no concern with... Um, <laughs> no concern with, uh, with politics, right? Um, yeah. And uh, he's not concerned with with these earthly kingdoms. Um, and obviously, he wants us to live faithfully in them. We're supposed to seek yeah. the, the shalom of, of the societies that we live in. But he wants us to be the church. Right? That's right. That's right. And I think that's, that's such an important point. Like, this is not a call to like, disengage from culture, right. break down or things like that. It's saying something more like, how do we do that in a way that really helps, right? That really makes a difference. And it, we do that... We make a difference when we are, um, when we are different, right? When we are, in fact, Christ's followers instead of just like one more piece of the culture around us. So, um, you know, two two thoughts from Scripture. I mean, a week ago Sunday, I preached at our church uh, from the prophet Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is interesting right? because he's he's seeing the evil of the society around him, and he's disturbed by that, um, and. He kind of challenges God with that. And God says, I will deal with it, right? And then he doesn't like the way God's going to deal with it. The Babylonians are going to come conquer <laughs> Judah, right? And he says, what about them? They're even worse than us, right? And God says, I'll deal with that too, but not in your, you know, basically, you have to trust me. I'm not telling you how I'm dealing with that one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Habakkuk is once again reminded, like, I'm called into this relationship with God, right? And I'm given this choice. I mean, like, God is great. He's the one who's alive. And God, you know, just talks about, like, the, you know, the people who worship false idols and, you know, what that you know, there's no hope in those people, those things, right? You made them yourself, right? Like, how do you trust in something you made, right? And I was just struck by that, you know, thinking about this conversation, thinking about the, the library presentation I did last week, right? That like we, we so often kind of make these false idols of our own ideologies, our own ideas about how the world works, right? And and we, and we then we trust in those, right? And God says, no, trust in me. Um, enter into relationship with me, right? So that's one scriptural thought. The other one is, just this morning, I was actually reflecting on Matthew 26. I'm taking a course on the Gospel of Matthew at Bethel Seminary. Um, and so I was reflecting on Matthew 26. And in Matthew 26, it just really struck me this morning, thinking about the way that um, Jesus is, he is described in that chapter, or describes himself, right, as the Son of Man. Um, and he is sort of the exemplary, he's the exemplary human being, the one who's living as he should, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
is, you know, Judas has betrayed him. Um, Peter denies him. The religious leaders are coming up with lies to condemn him. Um, his disciples, you know, fail him in the garden. They fall asleep when he asks them to watch. And then they all run off, right? Um, they, you know, he's taken by violence and his disciples attempt to respond by violence. And at each moment, right, Jesus is the one who's faithful. He says, you know what, even though you're going to run off, I will go ahead of you into Galilee and meet you there after my resurrection, right? Um, when they're falling asleep, he's wrestling with God in prayer. When they respond violently, he heals the person who's, <laughs> whose ear is cut off. Right? When they when they speak lies to him, he responds with truth, right? Um, none of those things are comfortable. None of those things are easy. And of course, the next chapter, he goes to the cross, right? Um, so if you're looking for you know the easy path, then Christianity's never been that, right? But but if you're looking to follow Jesus, right, the what, what I took away from that again is like, this is a hard call, and it is a call not to be like sort of conformed to the culture around you, but to give hope precisely by being different, right? By being a follower of Jesus Christ who does not operate by those standards, but operates by higher ones. Um, and so it just really struck me as like, this is how we have to think about it. That's a hard call. Um, and I think it's a necessary call, you know, now more than ever. Yeah. And right. And that's why he tells us to count the cost, right. Yeah. Of, of being his disciples. Um, it, the, the point isn't to resist our culture, to try to take down the powers um, that are evil and, you know, Hey, the, the, the Roman empire um, that was ruling the world at the time is way worse um, than anything we're experiencing now. Yeah, just this wasn't advocating that we should go out and try yeah. to sort of overthrow it yeah. um, or even be all that concerned with it. It's like pay your taxes and yeah. Yeah. You know, render honor to Caesar and then follow me and then be willing to die for me. Right. Which is <laughs> a very tall order. It's not easy. It's much yeah. easier to yeah. protest and to yeah. um, and to demand that the system be changed, and it's not that we can't that we can't try to um, that we can't try to you know perform our politics and our society, right. but that's not really what what we're supposed to be about. Um, and right. if it kills us in the long run, um, then so be it. Um, persecution right. is is not the worst thing that can happen to us, right? Um, and and hardship, right? Um, but so often, I think me and i think you know the american church more broadly we do think that that persecution or the erosion of of morals etc um is the worst thing that can happen to us and really the worst thing that can happen to us is we just become like the culture and we 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 lose sight of who we're following right 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 absolutely well uh we should probably wrap up but uh thanks andy for sharing with us um the insights that you gleaned in the sabbatical project are you are you planning on turning this thing into a paper uh what any any future yeah. steps with this project i am actually next so next steps are i'm planning to um submit a pa an application to present this at a conference in the spring i just got the call for papers um i guess the end of last week um so i am planning to submit that in the next few weeks here the conference is in April, so I will plan to have a paper ready to go for that. Um, and that's that's kind of the next step. And then hopefully after that, to get something published out of it. Yeah, and if I if I recall correctly, um, we're, we're planning on going to this conference together. Um, yeah, the conference is the uh, the Henry is uh, basically a biennial conference held by the Henry Institute on Religion and Public Life uh, at yeah. Calvin University. Um, shout out to uh, my my former mentor and friend Michael Watson, who just became the director of that institute. 
Um, it's fantastic, um, and it's it's in April, um, and they actually yeah. have some keynotes which are which are um, live streamed. So, yeah. um, thank you, Andy. Um, this was a this was a great conversation, a really interesting project. Um, we thank you all for uh, for listening to this episode, uh, and we hope um, all of you have uh, an absolutely wonderful Thanksgiving uh, this week. Mm-hmm.